Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest today is Bishoy Gubran. He's a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at Rush University Medical Center. I'm going to talk about uh, what's called neurodiversity and autism spectrum in children and adolescents and uh, some other issues, uh, perhaps regarding AI and things like that. So. Bishoy, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Richard, for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into these areas of study. And then I want to ask you about your current research and work. Awesome. I was born in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, I finished my medical school in Cairo. And then toward the end of the medical school, that's really where my interest in psychiatry kind of started to unfold. I came to the U.S., did a few years of behavioral and cardiovascular medicine research where we were looking at the heart-brain connection. And that kind of prompted me and got me so intrigued into understanding further of uh, the human mind, the psychiatry, psychology. I was always, you know, avocationally at least, very interested in philosophy and theology and understanding the, our existence from multiple layers. But when I started that research and found, started to really dig deeper into the understanding of the, of the mind as a phenomena that is emanated from the whole body and how that alters and affects and informs our experiences, that's when I started to gravitate towards psychiatry. Moving forward, I did more extra specialization in child and adolescent psychiatry, and that's where I am right now. Okay. And then what, what's your current research about? What questions are you looking into? When I was doing behavioral and cardiovascular medicine research, we were looking into how does psychiatric illnesses translate on the heart? And therefore, how does that heart-brain connection alters the brain by the very mechanism that the heart is shaped? And we found that everything is connected. The lungs is connected to the heart. So the way we breathe alters the way our heart beats. and something called heart rate variability or respiratory sinus arrhythmia. 
and that affects our mental states and cognitive states. In contrast, like our mental states and cognitive states and psychological and psychiatric issues does affect the way our heart beats by that very mechanism of heart rate variability, autonomic regulation, and affect the way we breathe. And that's something called cardiorespiratory coupling. Well, what are some specific, what does that mean? Like what, what conditions will affect the heart? Which ways you've observed? Okay. So we were looking at uh, psychosis, for example, in, uh, in one of the studies, and we were, were looking at the nuances of it. Our studies showed that in the psychotic states, somebody is having auditory hallucinations. And those auditory hallucinations are reinforcing a belief that is negative about him. Then that would affect the body, affect the heart, affect the way the autonomic nervous system uh, regulation is in a negative way. However, if someone has, a, for example, a, a grandiose delusion, somebody believes that he is more powerful and the voices reinforce that, autonomic nervous system would not be affected as negatively. So that was one of the, like, the interesting findings is that even if the belief is divorced from reality or psychotic, it can just by being a sort of has a, having a positive valence or a positive attitude to it, it does affect the body positively in contrast with a negative belief. And that further informs the idea of the belief systems and how they affect our physiological being. Okay. So, I mean, again, what are some specifics here? So if someone has a, a condition that is negatively affecting their heart, what does that mean? Like it'll raise their blood pressure, it'll raise their heart rate? Will it make them faint of breath and, you know, be able to help themselves if, if they are adversely affected? So one thing we've uh, found is that it does affect by increasing the sympathetic nervous system activation. Sympathetic nervous system is a system that is usually triggered when we are in fear, fight and flight or freeze. Sometimes evolutionary, it was when we were encountering threats to our biological being, whether that's a lion or something, and that system will be triggered. And that system would uh, ask our being, like increase our heart rate and, and utilize prompting it to either go for fear, fight and flight mode, that would help the being interact with that threat. Now, the threats are no longer as physical. The threats could be a, a mental uh, symbol, like uh, stress or anxiety, etc. And that would trigger the very same system. We were looking at resonant breathing, which means six breaths per minute. And uh, in one of those studies where we're looking at breathing at six breaths per minute, uh, when we, were, we had a metronome that uh, used to guide our patients into breathing at that rate. And it's called the resonant frequency because it really activates the parasympathetic system, uh, which is the counteracting system for the sympathetic. It's the system for that relaxes. Six breaths per minute gets you that resonant frequency, meaning it does activate the parasympathetic system, leading to that autonomic regulation in a very uh, relaxing, specific way. Okay, so in doing this breathing session, uh, did you look at parameters like blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera, before and after, or how did you uh, know that the experiment had an effect on people? Yeah, we were looking at the heart rate variability which is a measure of the beat-to-beat -beat interval differences. We were looking at something uh, a little bit technical called RMSSD, which is the root mean square of successive differences. It's an index that tells us whether the parasympathetic system is the one that's kicking in, is coming online. So with those breathing techniques, 
the parasympathetic system was kicking in, was coming online after they do the six breath per minute. And ironically, it only took three minutes of breathing at the rate of six breaths per, per minute to activate the parasympathetic system in that way, uh, at least in our data. Well, what does that mean activate it? So did people breathe slower? Did their heart rate come down? Like, did they say, oh, I feel better and more relaxed? Like what, what was noticed in the experiment? So we're looking at the physiological reading for the heart rate variability. You wear a wearable that is tracking the heart rate variability. Uh, sort of like, you know, when you go to the hospital and they do an EKG, there are many wearables now that can do that. When we get the report at the end, before and after the intervention, and the intervention in that sense was the breathing, we found that breathing for that amount of time did activate the parasympathetic nervous system, meaning that it activated the relaxing recovery mode in the body. Uh, because we know that the parasympathetic system is correlated with lower inflammatory index, a more relaxed system, better attentional focusing, etc. The system is not believing that's in a fear, fight or flight mode. So in a way, when the lungs breathe slowly and you breathe in a rate that is slower than the normal, which is uh, that, and at least in our study, was six breaths per minute, that leads to the heart understanding and realizing through cardiorespiratory coupling that the system is relaxing right now. So the heart sends a signal to the brain through the parasympathetic nervous system, telling it, well, it seems the organism is breathing on, on a lower level, and it seems that everything is, there is no threat here. So you can in increase your attentional focusing and you can decrease those uh, anxiety signals that you're sending to the organism. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Right, what is heart rate variability and what's important about it? Is more better, less better? Okay. You know, I've heard a bit about it, but I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, heart rate variability is a measure of our autonomic nervous system. Autonomic nervous system means this, the nervous system that we have no uh, conscious control over. Other people would call it automatic nervous system. So heart rate variability, the higher the better. Meaning if you, if you think of variability like flexibility, heart rate variability would mirror that our heart is interacting and flexible in the way that it regulates that beat-to-beat -beat interval depending on what's happening in our immediate environment. If the heart rate variability is low, means that the variability is very low, meaning it's very inflexible in the way that it responds to internal and external environment. When 
we are being very inflexible, it's in stressful situation where the heart wants, you know, he says, you know, you know what, let me be in a sympathetic activation or that fear, fight and flight mode. I don't want to bother myself right now with the nuances of the variability in our immediate environments because I'm in a very stressful mode. However, when the other system or the relaxed system is triggering or coming online, then the heart rate variability increases, meaning that the variability is way more, that the heart is able to tackle the small nuances of the ups and downs and the small changes in our external and internal environment. So again, more heart rate variability variability signals better health, heart health. What does it signal? Yeah, it's so interconnected that it's difficult to delineate just one thing. It signals that the, the body is in a parasympathetic state. Parasympathetic state means that the body is in a relaxed, less stressful state. Now, let's say that you do an exercise. That may change the autonomic regulation, but autonomic dysfunction or dysautonomia, like we call it sometimes, is when the balance between the system, the balance between the stressful system, which is a sympathetic system, and the relaxation system or the parasympathetic system is disrupted. And that dysautonomia creates a lot of problems. Anxiety is related to dysautonomia. Depression is related to autonomic dysregulation. All of these systems are so intricately connected. So they do affect the neuroendocrine system. They affect the way our body secretes something like adrenaline, for example, would be more triggered when the HRV is low, which means that when the HRV is low, the sympathetic system is more activated, norepinephrine or adrenaline can be higher. And that's through a system called uh, neurovisceral integrations. So how do we work to increase our heart rate variability? Are there exercises or protocols to do it? There are now actually uh, a lot of devices that do transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation. Still, uh, you know, the studies are coming up for it. In severe cases, we can do direct vagus nerve stimulation. Vagus nerve is the, is one of the longest nerves in our body, so connected with multiple things. And it's the main nerve responsible for parasympathetic activation. In fact, some people would call it the Buddha nerve uh, because it's almost like if you're meditating, if you're relaxed, if you're mindful, then that Buddha nerve will be activated, infusing relaxation all over your body. Breathing at a resonant frequency or six breaths per minute does activate the, the vagus nerve. Generally, any relaxation techniques does increase the vagus nerve. Sometimes after exercise, like during the exercise, the autonomic balance can shift toward the sympathetic more, but after it, sometimes what we call vagal rebound or how the body recovers from that stressful moment, which is the exercise, into the, relax the relaxation moment or recovery of the parasympathetic system. That's called vagal rebound, how fast they rebound back to that. It happens with exercise as well. Okay, so breathing six breaths a minute. Uh, what else? Exercise will help heart rate variability or what are the protocols used to help themselves? Mindfulness uh, techniques or being present in the body and being present in the moment and less attached to the symbolic reality of thoughts or anxiety. That's one thing that would trigger the parasympathetic nervous system. I didn't catch the last part of your question again, Richard. Oh, in addition to resonant breathing, what are some other protocols you use to put themselves in a parasympathetic state or increase their heart rate variability? Meditation is one great way 
different tools of meditation, whether it's mindfulness of the breathing, for example, is one way that you're activating that interoception. And when you're activating that, uh, an interoception means the way our body looks at our uh, signals from the different parts of our internal organs. So there is an area in our brain called the insula that's responsible for that inter, uh, for looking at those interoceptive stimuli. And when we are really monitoring our breathing or meditating and we're focusing on our breathing, then that can lead to that area being activated and that leads to parasympathetic activation as well. So different forms of meditation are helpful in parasympathetic activation or increasing the heart rate variability uh, and breathing at the rate of six breaths per minute. So what are you trying to figure out? Are you trying to figure out protocols to help people or are you studying this phenomenon for the sake of studying it? Like what research questions are you trying to answer? Uh, could breathing at the rate of six, uh, six breaths per minute or could resonant breathing be an adjunct intervention? Could be something that psychologists and group therapists use it to just put people with those conditions into a more relaxed state as, as a way of making them even more responsive for therapy and helping them be in a state where they are more responsive, having more attention. Well, that's powerful. So now that you're in uh, child and adolescent psychology, are you applying what you learned from HRV and this resident breathing to your current research or what, what is your current research about now? Uh, so currently I shifted gears into more of the clinical world. So I'm currently, uh, my research would be something like case reports and, uh, and I'm not doing the investigator initiated research. However, through that understanding, which is also evidenced by so many trials before, we know how to help a patient relax into a more a state where they are more responsive to our interviewing process. You know, like when I got a new patient, a child, and I have his parents, and we were interviewing the parents and interviewing the child, and it's just a stressful event for them to meet a psychiatrist. We're asking so many seemingly intrusive questions. We are asking so many personal questions about them, and we're, ask we're interviewing also their parents, sometimes in their presence to see the dynamics, and sometimes in their absence. And it's a stressful encounter for a child or an adolescent to, to go through this. And and we sometimes try, if the patient is having anxiety, to help them by saying, hey, let's do this breathing exercise, for example, for a few minutes. And uh, more often than not, in my practice, whenever we see a patient that is very anxious, I would guide them into that breathing just to get them into a more relaxed state where they can open up and, and tell us more so we can help them more. And that's part of reading the state, reading uh, the state of, of the person that's coming into the room and and what I do is like, I, I myself, firstly, do it because I know that I, I need to be in that parasympathetic state. I don't need to be in that stress. I need to get these goals out of this encounter state because if I go in with that state, I'm already prejudiced. I'm already goal-oriented. That going in as an empty canvas, trying to authentically connect with the person, their whole experience, perspective take them fully, understand their affect, read their, the way that they present their emotions in their smallest micro expression and the way their posture is, the way their dynamics. I have to be myself in a meditative state in order for me to be able to capture all of these things. Being in tune with the patient uh, and in tune with what's going on within them at that very moment 
makes me have the flexibility to interact with them in a way that will get get me the information that I really need in order to help them and in order to cool. read more than what meets the eye. So have you noticed if you're very calm and you've done some breathing yourself before a session that the patient reacts better to you or differently to you? Have you looked yes. at that? Yes, uh, definitely. I saw the difference. If I'm stressed, if I have patients back to back and I'm like stressed and, and, and uh, I totally see my own optimization uh, have a difference. And certainly the patients themselves uh, interact in a different way when they feel that you are in a rush or they feel that you are not authentically trying to connect, but rather trying to data gather, which is totally different. Uh, both are forms of data gathering, but in the relaxed state, I'm gathering data with all of my being, like my mind is synthesizing. And that's where what they call intuition or comes online. When, when you're not only just looking in a focused, specific way, you are using both systems. You're zooming in and zooming out. You're getting in tune with the nuances of the signals emanating from this human being, specifically with populations that are difficult for us to read sometimes, like uh, patients with autism or other forms of disorders where they cannot really express themselves the way we expect them to express themselves. Therefore, one has to be in a relaxed state of calm alertness, ability to read the smallest nuances of the facial expression, the breathing, the posture, the smallest signal, the prosody of the voice. The way that the voice moves up and down, does it carry a signature of anxiety? Does it carry a signature of hesitancy? Does it carry a signature of longing to connect? All of these things really help me go into their world. Because if I bring them to my world, then I have not done the right intervention. My intervention is go to their world, understand them in order for me to prescribe, quote-unquote, the treatment, whether it's pharmacological treatment, uh, psychopharmacological treatment, or therapy, or and what kind of therapy, and all the support systems that I can help or navigate towards them in order for them to have a better experience. But I have to be in a state where I am myself is responsive. If I go in stressed with my sympathetic system hyperactivated, then it just removes all of those nuances and removes all the beauty of the connection, because also children and adolescents are so sharp in the way that they can tell if the person really means what they say, or if the person in front of them really wants to connect and help them, or they are just asking because they have to ask. Their perceptual abilities are so in tune, and it hasn't been polluted yet by so many, you know, of the social decor, etc., why not, uh, you know, either film the interaction or have a uh, physician's assistant accompany you and maybe tell them to look out for certain things so you don't have to look out for everything. And you can look out for other things and then conference with them after the interaction with the patient and say, what did you see and what did, you know, what did I see? He said together from there, what did you got help like that? Well, I mean, that help could be a helpful way to get another opinion. But uh, in my experience, I feel that the physician encountering the patient should be realizing all different le levels and experiences that are going on with, the, with their patient in order to effectively prescribe treatment. And it has to be synthesized in their mind 
it can be informed by testing, for example. We sent so many of the, our children to different forms of testing, uh, psychological testing, psychometric testing. And that, that can inform us and help us navigate things and gives us some certain directions about the IQ level, the verbal uh, acuity, the, the vi visual spatial abilities, etc. But I feel that it's, it's of tremendous value. I hold in my mind the ability to reconcile the patient that is in front of me with older elements and not to rely on someone else to be observing these things while I'm focusing on, on just a small layer of them and what they're saying, for example. Because you can say something and yet the, what, what you are trying to communicate is something totally different. And if I take it in a concrete, literal way, then I am missing on so much data. I'm missing on so much understanding, so much richness of how this person's individual internal reality experience is going. What about doing a training for other professionals so they can be like you, be present and aware and give better care? Well, that's a great idea. Actually, I have one of my close uh, now friends uh, is a Stanford professor of meditation, teaching meditation. And we were actually talking about that at some point to create a program where it will help us all. Like It will help me learn different forms of meditation as well, but it will help other practitioners getting into that state where they are going in with a blank slate or emptying themselves from prejudices, emptying themselves from optimization angles. Of course, there will always be that. But to be able to absorb and understand and be so present, acutely present with the moment so that you become what we call in tune with the person in front of you, in tune with their existence, talking to their ethos, pathos, logos, to use, you know, the rhetoric triangle, like to use it, talking to their part that's appealing to authority, talking to their emotional brain, but also talking to their logical brain. And you're not just choosing one small layer and focusing on it and giving them like, oh, take this medication because it works one, two, three, four. It's an approach that works with some patients, but some other patients want that behavioral activation, behavioral modification. They want to see that modeling. They want to see that you're, uh, you're actually in a relaxed state to allow themselves to be in a relaxed state. Because we as physicians, whether in psychiatry or other, sometimes underestimate or forget how much impact does this visit have on the patient? For us, it's like we have, we see by the very fact of our profession, so many patients, but this one encounter means so much to the patient. It means it could be a quality of life changing for them. And for them to come here, they remember, I have patients that years later tell me, oh, because you told me one, two, three. And for me, that was like, it didn't feel like it's something big to tell them. And I would assume that probably somebody else told them, but coming from their physician, it has a different type of impact. It has a different psychological feeling to it, psychological weight that they, it, it activates them on so many levels. And you know, the, Richard, the placebo effect, for example, I feel like the, the physicians can't even push to activate the placebo effect more by the way that they present the treatment, the way they present the medication to the patient. I love, for example, when I'm discussing the, the benefit to have, to have a really certainty that these benefits are what I want to deliver to the patient first, that sound of conviction in my voice, like, I really want to help you. 
And then I talk about the side effects and everything, but the conviction, the whole theory that I'm carrying in my prosody, carrying in my vocal signature when I'm talking to the patient does wonders in how they respond to the treatment. Some patients would improve the second day when I know that, well, the, this medication takes weeks in order for it to reach a steady state and starts affecting them. How does that happen? It's that you're activating placebo effect that, you know, it's a mystery of how it works and how some of our medications very barely separate from placebo when we do those statistical differences. But those, how can we really, really activate that as well is part of that art of psychiatry and art of being the physician is to engage, have the conviction, have the certainty, have the calmness and have the connection with the different layers of the human being in front of you in order to really infuse a change. All right. So yeah. what, what do you think holds back a lot of physicians? Because, you know, I, I guess a fear of uh, being human, fear of getting into like personal relationship with the patient or crossing a line, like what, why are most doctors not like this at all? Psychiatry uh, is a very, you, you get to know a lot of the intimate details and a lot of, of the details of their psychological maneuvering in their day-to-day -day life. You get to know their family, you get to know different uh, physicians, different mechanistic. I cannot speak on their behalf. I, I'm talking in my profession, which is psychiatry, where you need to be capturing all these signals because we do not have so many objective tests. There is no labs that tells me there is depression. There is no labs that tell me that this patient, despite not being able to voc vocalize himself, is complaining of anxiety or complaining of a side effect of one of the medications. In the psychiatry field, one has to really be in tune with the patient in order to really inform their decision, because otherwise uh, we do not have objective labs as much. We can rely on some of the CT scans and, and the MRIs and fMRIs and things that uh, tells us about how the brain is operating, and that can inform our decisions on certain things for sure. And we can do labs like blood work, et cetera, to, to monitor our medications, monitor their side effects. But there is no clear biomarker where I say, I have this on my lab work, this is depression. Unlike many of the other medical fields, which are advanced in that, or uh, it's easier to know that someone has diabetes than to know that they have, you know, a specific form of depression or bipolar, if, I mean, if you have an objective test for it. Okay. Well, very good. We're just about out of time. So what's the best place for people to find out more about your method? And to find out more about your work, where can they go? Yeah, I mean, some of my papers are published online. This method, I don't think it's my method. I think that so many psychiatrists do use it. I know that our conversation took us that way. But in the future, when we are developing that system where we are utilizing meditation and breathing, talking about that blank slate approach, hopefully if I get to do that uh, system, then I'll reach out to you. Okay, very good. Well, be sure. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about uh, all these diverse topics within your experience. Thank you, Richard. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. 
The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.